Project Lawful aka Plane Crash by Yarwain aka Eliezer Yudkowski and Lintamande. Thread 4, Project Lawful and Their Oblivious Boyfriend. Episode 89. Site manager Ferrer Mayol is a grandfather-aged man who looks visibly harried. Keltum and Carissa are ushered in past his outer office right away. But even Keltum has to wait a moment while Mayol finishes talking to somebody and hands them a signed piece of paper that they then rush off with. He nonetheless manages something like a half-grin as he rises from behind his desk to give Keltham a brief bow before reseating himself. Keltham he says, his voice warm if tired. I'll be frank, I expected you to storm into this office a lot earlier, and I'm glad it could wait this long. If you think the situation you hear about now is a horrible, chaotic mess, it was worse yesterday and only slightly better just before the Nadal attack. Carissa is aware that Ferrar Mayol, if he's noticed that she likes him quite a lot, would think this contemptible, but she does. He has such good bluff of a very different flavor from everyone else she interacts with regularly. And he was at the world-wound like a sensible person, not in a Gorian, which she increasingly suspects is poisonous to sense. Good to see we're being frank here. I admit, I've been wondering if there was a reason the actual site management was being hidden from me. First couple of days I was more or less hiding from you, yes. There was a vast amount of chaos to order after this project had to be established completely from scratch at Asmodeus's will, with no existing command hierarchy responsible for originating it. We had several different factions in governance, I suppose you could term them, trying to grab control of what they saw as a potential source of future influence and funding. It took direct intervention from both the Queen and the Grand High Priestess to make that even mostly not happen. I wasn't just busy. I was entirely unsure of what sort of person you were and what would happen if you did storm into my office, ask strange questions, develop some very alien picture of what was going on, and start trying to make your own moves or demands inside a frankly volatile situation. Then, of course, Nadal attacked, and three-quarters of the government went off to fight. I'm still not caught up on transcripts and reports, and I'm not sure I ever will be at this rate— but it sounds like you've had some long conversations about Golarion, and what I'm saying now should not be so absolutely strange to you as it would have been on day one. Dare I so hope? Again, keeping it frank, my reaction is that you're considerably underestimating how well I would have taken on day one to being told that I did not understand what was really going on, and that it would have been a bad idea for me to interfere in something. But I will concede that this, itself was something you had no way of knowing. If your prior mental image before the evidence was something more like a random intelligence 18 person from Galarian. Maybe a year later, when you're much more used to things, we'll get together on the project anniversary and laugh about what might have happened if Keltham had come into this office on day one and heard what was going on and decided that it was very reasonable to ask to speak himself with some of those ambitious bureaucrats that the Queen and Grand High Priestess were trying to gently shoo away. Or perhaps we'll have a laugh about how they couldn't possibly have managed to confuse you even then. I think it's more that you're underestimating the degree to which, if you'd told me I was about to cause a disaster, and Carissa nodded along and said yes, that sure sounded like a disaster to her too, 
I would have exercised my vast capacities of inaction and just not done that thing. Civilization is made out of both negative and positive spaces. Its shape is as much what it doesn't do as what it does. But fine, you had no way of knowing. I admit that even on day six, letting my world wound arrival in the evening be day zero, I am still dismayed to hear about the actual hierarchical structure of Chelish mini-governments, as I did only a few moments ago, and more dismayed to hear now that the job of a project manager in Galarian includes managing not just the people under the project, but the people above the project having fights about it. You don't have that in Dathilan, Maiol says. He lets some of his real shock into his voice. It can be a bad habit to adopt, but if you do have the relevant skills not to overuse it, there's no point in faking an emotion when the real emotion is ready to hand. Not more than momentarily in any healthy organization. It would require that something go very visibly wrong, in a way that would cause the one person responsible for having that not happen to notice using their organizational eyes, and they'd come in and rearrange things using their organizational hands. So I've been at this a while, which you might guess they wouldn't have put somebody inexperienced on this divine vision or not. I've been running projects, smaller ones admittedly, since 17 years before our queen took power in Asmodeus's name 15 years ago. If someday you worry that you're feeling too cheerful or just that it's way too easy for you to fall asleep at night, come into my office and I'll tell you about what project management was like in Cheliac's before. Oh, so you are the priest from the Worldwound, then, the one I originally asked to pray to Asmodeus. I was wondering if that was real, or if I just hadn't seen any other grandfather gender-troped people since then and couldn't tell the difference. Clerics of Asmodeus were project managers even before Asmodeus and the current queen took over. Better than having your project managed by someone who's not a priest of Asmodeus. I stayed out of the revolution, of course. Don't think I need to explain to you why I had to stay neutral. Carissa isn't actually sure she understands why. Is it the lawful thing to do? Maybe if you're committed on another project? I think it's obvious, but why trust what you can verify? If clerics of Asmodeus worked against employer interests to help Asmodeus take over countries, nobody would hire them. Yep. If you manage a world-wound installation, you have met clerics of Abadar. I am frankly not totally happy with things having gone the way they did. I suspect I'll estimate later that there are processes I could have set in motion a few days earlier if you'd risked a conversation, as would in fact have been safe. But you didn't know, so fine. So, basic questions. Who's your own manager, and what's their role in Chelish governance? What's the further line of reporting to the Queen or the Grand High Priestess, or whichever of the two is slightly more in charge? What's this project's budget, and what's the series of concentric enclosing budgets above that up to governance's budget? For that matter, what is governance's budget? Don't panic. Nobody knows. Why exactly should I not panic? Because it won't actually help. Very sensible. Ferrer Mayol can give rough guesses for various quantities, and does. By far the largest expense on Project Lawful so far would have been raised dead on the security killed in the Nadal assault, at 5,000 GP per race. But that doesn't actually get paid by Project Lawful. It gets paid by the part of the government that raises people. De facto, the largest recurring expense on Project Lawful is by far the senior wizards making up security. 
they'll run around 500 GP slash week apiece. And while it's not considered good practice for anyone, including Mayol, to know exactly how many security there are, there'd be more than six and less than 30. That doesn't get paid out of Project Lawful's budget proper. It's a military expenditure by the branch of the military that got authorized by governance to post security here. After taking into account considerations that included a request and payment by Broom's faction for there to be better protection here. The actual Project Lawful, be it clear, has not yet at this point been assigned that kind of money flow. In part because Mylol hasn't requested that kind of money flow apart from particular expenses because it would have weakened his negotiating and political combat position in trying to keep lines of governance above relatively simple and clear and prevent anybody else from swallowing Project Lawful, which, to be clear, the Queen could prevent if it came to that, but only by expending her own political capital, which wouldn't be a good career move for Mayol himself unless there was a reason. Things are now a bit clearer, but not to the point that somebody from Dathilan should get their hopes up. Keltham heard an estimate on 100 GP for a fourth Circle Wizards per seven days' earning potential. From there to 500 GP for fifth Circle Wizards seems like quite a jump. Why he jumps on that part? Well, it's a true Intaldor fact so perfectly safe so far as Mayol knows. Fifth Circle is when you become able to teleport which is massively more in demand than most things someone can do at 4th circle Also, I'm guessing it was Sevar who told you the figure of 100 GP slash week for her own earnings. She's right, but most 4th circle wizards wouldn't make that. Not every 5th circle wizard is qualified to be security either. Right then. Does it happen to be true at all that Cheliax has a concept of the standard cost of a high-potential young researcher exceptionally good at math? Nope. Also right then, Keltham is thinking of retaining eight out of the current 12 job candidates past their first contracted week. He'll need to talk options for the remaining four compatible with governance security considerations and make sure those options are good enough. Keltham is pretty sure that Asmodia, Meritzel, and Ione all now have expected value to Chelish governance exceeding that of a five-tate-circle security wizard. But for purposes of aligning incentives, Keltham intends to offer them most of their real compensation in the form of small shares of future project lawful income, which is considered the very standard best practice of civilization. His plan is 200 GP slash week for the three, plus a 10, 000 GP bonus for Ione in respect for her special hazardous, possibly long-term damaging, and highly useful service in delivering advance warning on the Nadal assault and maybe actually timing that assault, so Keltham would be safer. Carissa gets 300 GP slash week in respect of her status as being something like Keltham's de facto ops officer or second-in-command. Pilar, Peranza, Tonia, and Gregoria aren't obviously going to end up irreplaceably valuable, but are still in the running for being less brilliant researchers, or maybe brilliant ones if the intelligence headbands ever come through and are any good. 100 GP slash week for each of them, except Pilar. Pilar gets 150 GP slash week in token of her higher than obvious expected value and a future promotion. If it turns out that Caden Kylian has more in mind than snacks 
and Pilar should also get 1,000 GP for taking a sword in place of Keltham, which would not obviously have been a terrible thing if it had happened, but key word, obviously. Keltham realizes that no actual agreement has been reached on how Chelish funding of the project will be compensated. Keltham will compose a suggested interim compact on what counts as project revenue, pending some more difficult working out of the basic question of how to measure the project's benefit to Cheliax, including the counterfactual on Keltham having started elsewhere instead, and fire that back as a suggestion. But people do need their non-volatile portion of their salaries in the meanwhile. Possibly they wouldn't starve if unpaid, but it is considered a core good practice in civilization that if you can't pay basic salaries, it's time to shut down the company. Keltham's current plan is to request 500 GP slash weak nominal salary for now, but with the understanding that Keltham might come back and ask for an increase if it turns out that there are magic items he can't get on a governance budget, and that would substantially increase his own effectiveness. If it's a better look if Keltham gets 100 GP slash weak instead, he's potentially open to that for now, or to start, since he doesn't currently know how he'd actually spend the money on much. No other project members have particularly expressed agreement with any of these offers, and the four core members, in Keltham's view, would have considerable leverage over him to demand higher non-volatile incomes, though Keltham would in that case reduce their share of future project income. Keltham is nonetheless interested in hearing if these budget quantities sound feasible. She wishes she weren't lying to him. It's a stupid thing to wish. If he were actually just evil, this project would be going much better, but much worse for Carissa in particular. But it'd be nice to be standing here in Mylyal's room on the same side. Also, that's a lot of money. She'll be able to make so many magic items with which to corrupt and ensnare Keltham, which she can credibly claim is within the budget he negotiated for her. Savar, orders? It's within our actual budget capacity, but maybe you want him less capable or the researchers hungrier or just to not have it look like he gets everything without negotiating. She thinks they should go ahead. The researchers now know that they were forced to sell their souls for much less than they're selling for in Dis. A lot of gold is the right start towards convincing them they're still coming out ahead. And Keltham's more sensitive to being cheated about money than to being cheated in other ways. Probably it should be a strain for Alter Cheliax, though, so future requests can be denied. She does not want Sala to have that much money to play with. Perhaps such a large sum can't be gotten all at once. They can discuss the other girls later. I'll look into available options for the four leaving the project and get back to you shortly. Ten zero 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 GP to Ioni would be politically difficult to swing. For now. Yes, she saved us more than two raised deads. It's still politically difficult. Easier to give her a higher salary for the moment. For the rest, it'll burn some political capital and reduce our future room for maneuver, but I can make it happen. You okay with that? I'll ask Ioni if she's okay with being at 400 GP slash week to reflect her special services, though with the understanding that she's still below Carissa on the organizational chart. I don't suppose that there'd possibly be any legible answer if I asked for a quantitative estimate of how much political capital it burns as a fraction of all we've got, or how fast I can regenerate that political capital by teaching more useful things similar to those already taught. 
or how much better it is if the salaries all go down by 25%. Sorry, best I can give you is that knocking 25% off all the salaries would probably not really help much. Not saying it's the wrong decision. I think it's the right decision if you want my opinion on it. Just letting you know the costs. And that a similar recurring expense getting added next week wouldn't be a good look absent something exciting to show along the way. Well, let's do it then. And to return to a previous question, your own boss and the line of reporting from there? In principle, my current boss is High Priestess Jacinth Subirax, who is not usually a manager and is more of a Seventh Circle cleric with a peacetime specialty in... Actually, you just ask her if you want to know what she usually does. Subirax can be the Seventh Circle firepower on the premises, but without her belonging to the military or any of the other factions that would love to absorb us, even though they scarcely have any idea what we do, meaning that none of those factions were offended by another faction getting the prize when it was announced I would temporarily be reporting to her after the Nidal attack. Subirax reports directly to the Grand High Priestess. She is not, in fact, managing anyone or anything besides me except as directed in cases like her monitoring Sevar for the last few days. Project Lawful is, in principle, a church-managed project because of the Asmodeus intervention, hence the ultimate report to the Grand High Priestess on paper. Its budget, however, is coming out of the Queen's side of things, and if the Queen gave me or Subirax an order, we'd obey. The Queen could, in principle, fund it from her privy purse, but she'd rather not and I'd rather not ask. So your budget request for salaries is going to be submitted to a special projects office, general enough that it could reasonably claim the credit, inside governance internal politics, not with the queen who knows better, for cheaper roads or hotter forges or several of the other things you've talked about, whose director knows me personally and who the queen had a personal chat with and which will then be backed for a correspondingly higher budget within governance. Anything relating to security ignores all this and heads off into a bizarre tangle which, from your perspective, acts like a spun coin that is also insane. I do expect them to do a good job of not letting you get kidnapped. On the whole, this is a stunningly clear situation for a project like this one to end up in. And you should thank me for maneuvering to keep things so incredibly simple and straightforward. I hope we can keep it. Thank you for your valuable work in keeping this situation so amazingly clear and straightforward. I was, in fact, able to understand all that, and that's better than I expected walking in. Low expectations are the key here. Keep them low and you'll stay happy. Civilization has a similar proverb. It is, however, about accurate expectations. Our version of the proverb is objectively better, and I'm not going to make like it's not. Was that a threat? It doesn't seem like that should be a threat. If it's not a threat, Mayol does not quite know what it is. Sorry for asking, but I don't suppose we're done here. For now. Done for now. I'll go back and talk to my researchers and send you a message when requested salaries finalize. Carissa leaves with him. She looks as disconcerted as Alter Carissa would be. The world wound isn't run like that. There's a very clear command structure. I'm mostly guessing that reflects a decision to allocate more competent people to the world wound, thereby leaving fewer to run the rest of Cheliax, and not that people actually become more competent managers when fighting demons. 
but it's an important question, because it determines whether the rest of Cheliacs would get saner or crazier if we closed the world wound. Somebody should talk to me about whether hitting that place really hard, the way civilization could hit it, would actually help or hurt anything. Since I last thought of that question, the new thought occurs to me that since there's apparently known wish phrasings that definitely do create giant flaming craters, that it hasn't been considered to set one of those on a timer and get everyone away. Should I actually be talking to Ioni about that sort of thing? Wouldn't solve the problem at all. Or it'd kill the demons that are currently there, but as long as the rift is open, more will come through and we don't know how to close it. Guess it's the sort of thing that I probably can't solve easily, but I should talk about it with a more experienced wizard anyways. Just in case I'm like, well, have you tried observing the rift's resonating frequency so you can try driving it to collapse using a simple oscillator? And they're like, what? It seems worth a shot. And I actually do expect civilization will close the world wound just by being able to have lots of smart people think about it full time and being richer so we can move the ward stones in a bit at a time, give ourselves a smaller perimeter to defend, figuring out other clever stuff. But my bet is there's not a single clever solution, partially because Iomedai is notably absent from this here god pileup. You act like we know we have the complete god list. I don't quite see that reasoning squaring up, actually. Unless Iomedai has an impossibly high discount rate for a god, she should care similarly regardless of whether we close the world wound in fifty years or five, unless it's otherwise due to close anyways. I'd guess that, if she doesn't like Asmodeus, She's not happy enough to help with this project, even if it ends up closing the world wound later. I'd be more nervous about the conspicuous apparent absence of lawful good if Caden Kalian wasn't in. Not that I understand what that implies, but it's less of an unambiguous warning sign than all the altruists staying out of your project. Snort. Agreed. But as it stands, we've got your god, Nethys, Caden Kalian, Asmodeus... Pretty much the whole god spectrum. Not counting Broom's god? I guess the catastrophe prevention god posting an observer doesn't exactly count as an endorsement, per se. My brain's still bugging me about the four who I decided didn't make the cut. Until Mile Yall gets back to me with their options, I don't feel like I can actually have that horribly unpleasant interview that's looming ever larger in my imagination. But it also feels increasingly awful that I haven't, like, let them know. Not a problem you're supposed to solve for me. The person who makes the decision is supposed to bear the unpleasant interview consequences of it. Waiting until you know their options makes sense to me. I bet they'll be much less freaked out if you can lay out exactly what happens next. Though, also, you don't have to feel bad. And I think I wouldn't feel bad, so maybe hiring is more my kind of task. If we get to the point where you're working with me to decide who to hire, and making your own calls about who to let go... You can handle that part, yeah. I suppose for this occasion I could have asked you who to keep and see if your judgment matched mine. And if it did, I could tell you to handle the exit interview on the grounds that you apparently knew the full reasons for why they weren't staying. They're weaker students? But I am not a fourth-rank keeper and can't say I'd have picked those four, not when I hadn't in fact picked them out in advance. Should I let you go off on your date? Give me a long hug and then you can go. Carissa gives him a hug and contemplates the exit interviews that she's in fact going to have to give tonight once they've figured out what to do next with the girls. She is kind of dreading it, which is pathetic. 
Hurting and terrorizing people is fun and necessary, and she hasn't been doing it enough lately. Bail timestamp, day six, night. Keltham enters into his date with Meritzel, with only a slight sense of trepidation. He's mostly worried about strange things his own brain might do to him. He's only a little worried about whether Meritzel will suddenly decide that she should stop seducing him and let herself be the one seduced during the rest of the date, thereby revealing the true illusoriness of his apparently promised rise out of the ranks of the median male mate value, which is not high enough to get much seduction work put into you compared to the amount expected by, say, a woman. But primarily, he is in fact expecting this date to go fine, and if not, he'll deal. How's Meritzel dressed? Anything interesting, or does she not, per se, have anything except her uniform? She does not have anything except her uniform, though at her new salary that should change pretty fast. She has not apparently decided she should stop seducing Keltham now that she has him, though she's not actually entirely sure how seducing people works. The important thing is that she's trying, making any sort of visible effort. The new gender trope in him seems like it would be sad if she wasn't. He'll ask if anyone has mentioned to Meritzel a certain contract that she'd have to sign if she wanted to preserve her options for the evening, getting sufficiently interesting. Signing this contract doesn't decide anything, to be clear. It just preserves possibilities in that undecided future. Yep, Carissa told her and showed her Carissa's, and if it's the same, she's willing to sign it. This does leave the puzzling question of what they could possibly find to talk about during their date, a search that Keltham himself has always dreaded he says. They haven't read any of the same books, written fan fictions set in the same universe, aren't obviously on opposite sides of any shared debate, and all of their previous life experiences are probably far too similar for their random childhood anecdotes to have any interest whatsoever for each other. So, all those men, far less worthy than Keltham, who proved unable to wear her in her true shirt form, what sort of sex has she been having with them instead? Some of these redactions are because we're not allowed to know that. But I think most of them are actually because what he was thinking was untranslatable. But I think the approximate picture is that the forces that put Keltham on top of me did that for a reason, and might have been the reason for subsequent interventions to make things more like a Dathelani romance. And we want Keltham to believe that's not true, but it probably is. Carissa concludes the briefing for Asmodia. Questions? Who is Sever a hidden cleric of, then? Asmodia does not ask, because Sever is apparently managing not to know this. I want so much for there to be some way to extract more information about Dath Ilani romance novels from Keltham. We need that information. It's just so much not a priority in the Tropolis world where we don't actually care. Wait, Paxty. We could brief her on the parts that Keltham knows we know. Tell her on full bluff that we absolutely don't believe it, and think Keltham is right not to believe it either. And Paxty would absolutely fly off to pester Keltham about it, given permission. That happens in the Tropolis world, if Paxty gets briefed. But Keltham might not believe that. Is it a disaster if he doesn't? Yes, it is, because then he concludes not just that he's in the trope world, but also in the conspiracy world because we hid the tropes from him and tried to conceal our inquiry about it. Could Ione just be openly curious? She's visibly different from the rest of us. I'll think about it. One thing does seem clear to me. The tropes are things of probability. 
Understanding Keltham's law of probability is going to be just as much key to mastering them as knowing the particulars of Dath Ilani romance novels. If I had to guess, that's what the not-understandable terms were about. She's feeling a lot more uncertain than before about tropes being unreal. Even if there were gods involved in faking it, there could also be tropes making the gods do that. There could be real tropes involved, and gods faking other tropes. That seems right to me. Probability and, uh, the thing he jokingly scolded Ione for bringing up. Anthropics. Making copies of people, which can produce probabilities of three hundred hundredths three years after probability gets taught to Doth Elani, which means it is still being taught to children. In the tropeless world, would I be urgently interested enough to bother Keltham about anthropics? No, but Ione might be. He could suspect us being behind Ione's question anyways. It'd be true, and we can't stake everything on a daith. Ilani never imagining a thing that happens to be true. Ione asking about anthropics doesn't quite have all the same problems as asking Keltham about Dath Ilani romance novels. There's a real excuse about it being fascinatingly forbidden mathematics. But it has most of the problems. I don't think I can actually do this without plus four to both intelligence and wisdom, and maybe also solving some of the problems that Keltham posted. It feels like I'm just pretending to talk the way I think when I'm actually smart. I know. I urgently put in for your headband. If they turn me down, I'll go and argue some more about it. That will not be necessary, says Aspexia Rugaton, taking off her invisibility ring. Oh. Carissa is going to end up with the mental habit of assuming the Grand High Priestess and the Queen are watching her at all times, which is good for her moral development, probably. Grand High Priestess? She says on the off chance Asmodia wasn't sure and inclines her head. Asmodia has never met Aspexia Rugaton before, and it was, in fact, taking her a moment to identify that this is not just a high priestess of Asmodeus, but one who's wearing the very distinct crown of the Most High. She's so shocked that it takes her, too, too long to realize that she should be falling to her knees feeling more terrified than she has at any moment since she wept in the gardens of Aracura. No, she needs to not think about that. There must be no suspicious gaps in her thoughts. What should she be thinking about? They said that people on the project didn't get tortured. She hopes that's true even with the Grand High Priestess of Asmodeus. She didn't mean, she didn't mean any temerity. She only hoped for the tool she needs to serve Asmodeus. I will be making use of this one's time for somewhat over two hours, Sivar. Perhaps two and a quarter. You may go about whatever other business you have. Asmodeus stays kneeling with new terror pouring through her. How many bad things can happen to you in two and a quarter hours? A lot. More than enough to break you forever before you can die. Her life is very recently unfucked, and she has had a long, long time of being terrified before that, and bad things happening to her, to remember. Carissa notices the absurd temptation to tell Asmodia it'll be all right, which it probably will, but she doesn't know, and presumably the Grand High Priestess is as terrifying as is salutary anyway and shouldn't be undermined, even if Carissa knew and had a good reason to reassure Asmodeia, which she does not. Asmodeia will get what serves Asmodeus, as will we all. 
She should go talk with Myelyol about arrangements for the girls being fired from the project. She does that. The girls' thoughts are slightly strange. They cut out sometimes, as if she were suppressing some ill thought and doing quite a good job of that. Usually there are traces. The thought before the suppressed thought is revealing. If Rugaton used one of her full caster-level detect thoughts, she could probably go right past this Asmodeia's defenses, but those she must save and hazard wisely. The thoughts Rugaton can detect are all entirely ordinary terror. She lets Asmodia go on kneeling and scaring herself for a time, for this will also help teach a lesson, and finally, Rugaton speaks. Rise, Asmodia. You can expect no harm if you conduct yourself with a modicum of prudence. Asmodia scrambles to her feet, not entirely able to hide her tremors. Very, very briefly, the thought occurs to her to wonder why this could not have been said earlier, before she hammers it down with prudence. How may I serve, Most High? She says. For the first lesson of hell is to obey. You will have a little more than two hours in which to think about certain matters, during which security will prevent you from leaving this room, but will bring you any notes you desire, or even assistance if you think that helpful to you. Foremost, use that time to consider those arts by which one would seek to deceive a Dathelani and weave about him an illusion he cannot distinguish from reality, even though, in the end, the two must be distinct. Secondarily, I will set you a puzzle, or rather a subject to consider. Spend a quarter hour on it at the end of your time, and report back to me on your thoughts after I return to you. Have you recovered from your terror enough that you are hearing and understanding these words? Yes, Most High. What is the other puzzle I am to consider? She briefly considers asking what happens if she fails, rejects the thought. She has been told once that she will not be harmed if she shows a little prudence, and it is not prudent to make the Most High repeat herself. The way of diligent obedience to something greater than yourself, which cannot see you clearly, which can speak to you hardly at all, whose goals and purposes you understand but barely, and often with wild errors on your own part, something which in some ways knows far better than you do the consequences of your acts, and yet too often fails to know what any mortal could see in moments with their mortal eyes. One might consider an adult trying to guide a three-year-old through a dungeon, seen in flashes through foggy glass, and only every ten minutes may they call out to the child at all. I ask, not what must be the way of that adult, but the way of that child. I would have you speak to me upon this topic as it might be spoken of by a Dath Elenai, or out of your own knowledge of such law as Keltham has taught. Your project of deceiving Keltham will have fruits evaluated by Savar. Your thoughts on obedience will be evaluated by me. The work that you do for Sivar is more urgent, and unless your other work has entirely stalled out before then, you will not spend more than fifteen minutes considering the question I just posed you. If you cannot turn your thoughts from my interesting question and complete your more important work, you will fail your more important work, and I do expect that to be the more severe cost to you than failing my own small test. 
These instructions will be copied to you in writing by the security who has witnessed it. Do you have any questions? Her only thoughts are on how to serve more effectively, and she is terrified still. But this is her only chance to speak. She needs to find out the most vital information and ask for it. Is it permitted that I know the purpose behind your question upon obedience? I will not tell it to you. You could, I suppose, try to deduce the purpose behind my instructions, and then, with that understanding, you could do what you deemed best yourself to serve what you guessed to be my purpose, rather than being constrained by the chains of following instructions you do not really understand. Aspexia Rugaton smiles. It's not one of the pleasant smiles. But even then, little child, you would not be punished. The habit of punishing that as much as I would wish would be too expensive to Cheliax for me to follow all my impulses there. Sever is running her experiment. I will not invalidate it. Not so long as you exercise a modicum of prudence. Any further questions? About what is it most important that I exercise this modicum of prudence, Most High? Invoke none of the active functions of my crown. While I sleep the two hours I must sleep every day, do not fear invoking them by accident. A deliberate will is required. Aspexia lifts the crown of the Most High from off her head, as she has not done in quite some time now, and diminishes. You would not be able to tell, unless you knew her well, that who stands before Asmodia now is not the true Most High, but only a creature of habits and reflexes and plans already laid. Asmodia is not particularly remembering to breathe. She is so shocked. She has never heard of such a thing. Never. A creature of habit and pre-laid plans lays the crown on Asmodia's head. The artifact changes shape as well, to a form less recognizable, if no less potent. There are not such things as headbands of plus four to intelligence and wisdom lying about without wearers, says the creature of habit and pre-laid plans. This crown is plus six to wisdom, and plus four to intelligence, and plus four to splendor, if that matters for anything. See well what you can do with it because only very grand results will lead to there ever being a second opportunity like this. Manage anything decent, and a headband of plus four wisdom will be found for you, to be used with Fox's cunnings. I go now to sleep. You have two hours, or some tiny fraction more. The flesh golem following the remembered instruction of the true Most High, who does not in this moment exist anywhere in Galarian, turns to depart. Asmodia is calling to security in all haste. She needs her notes. She needs the exact text of the questions that Keltham laid. She desires Ione brought to her, even if she can but serve as sounding board. And now she is already thinking while she awaits those resources. To waste time would not be wise. And Asmodia is nothing in this moment, if not wise. Keltham wants the other girls put up somewhere comfortable, maybe in this building, and taught some economically valuable skill. Carissa tells Mael y'all. I don't think he suspects anything about hell. Might be for the best, anyway. For the girls remaining in the project to not be terrified of failing out. And so we don't have to micromanage the conversations where he fires them to prevent desperate outbursts of some kind or another. I hesitate to contradict you on a matter of Keltham psychology. 
But in this case, I would wager money, the wording is deliberate, that our pet cleric of Abadar wants the girls to not be any worse off than if they'd never tried to trade with him. That's what he wants. What do we want? We want him to believe they're fine. We want to present him with the same visible appearances that Alter Cheliacs would. Yep, which we could achieve with impersonators and lying to the girls remaining in the project, if you've got some compelling reason to. Though the idea makes her uneasy, it feels like more of a betrayal of Keltham than all the rest, somehow. Impersonators are expensive. Keeping the failures around the fortress isn't cheap, but it's a lot less expensive than that. Other option that occurs to me is sending them to Igorian to keep up appearances about the fake Project Lawful and free up an impersonator there. And more importantly, get them out of Myljol's personal hair. But you'd need to decide what Alter Cheliacs would be doing with them in Igorian. Alter Cheliax doesn't have to worry about somebody using detect thoughts on the girls, since that spell doesn't exist there, I think, which means they have wider options than we have in reality. I think Alter Cheliax doesn't send them to Agorian, since Alter Cheliax isn't running an elaborate con in Agorian, and I think it'll cross his mind that we're likelier to be lying about them being all right if he can't check than if he can. If we think Alter Cheliax should be running the thing we're running in Agorian, I need to think that through, probably with Asmodia. In Alter Chaliax, Yomedi's not visibly expending tons of resources trying to see what's going on with our operations, and I don't think Osirion tried to kidnap Pilar, either. Conventional theory of deception is that we'd love to have him get suspicious of how they're doing in Igorian, demand they be teleported in right now for him to check up on. We promptly do. Turns out they're fine. I'm still struggling with how the thing you do with Dothilani is... not that. The reason that would normally work is that most people would be matching new evidence they got to there being a deception in Igorian, building steadily greater conviction that there was a deception in Igorian, and on being satisfied there was no deception in Igorian, decide that maybe they were over-pattern matching and aren't being deceived we'd be using against them their own tendency to make sense of the world by weighing a couple stories instead of all of them. Keltham will instead have a general probability he's being lied to about something important that will go up if we do suspicious things, and if he's later satisfied there's nothing up in Agorian, he'll just consider the conspiracies not in Agorian. Alter Cheliax needs to be one whole fabric that produces everything we do, or we'll lose... lose sooner. I don't think this is going to last forever. I'm hoping to get a year out of it. Also, I might want him to hook up with Yaisa. Maybe he'll have an easier time being evil with girls he doesn't need for his research project. I was going to say that Alter Mayol wants the failures out of his management work and more limited budget and does look for excuses to put them somewhere like Igorian or Ostenso. But if he needs to create a new project section to host Yaisa regardless, it's not much more work for him to keep the others here, too. This also happens to be true of the real Mayol. Our pet Abadar cleric is going to need a story for why Alter Yaisa is sleeping with him. If he's no longer her boss, he'll want to know what she's getting out of that in return if not better promotion prospects. Think you've already run into some of that. I 
think he actually doesn't think we're sleeping with him for promotion prospects. Alter Yaisa is just very into him and likes having his attention and wants to be the one who gets him to stop being so good all the time. If Yaisa can pull that off, which I'll ask Subirox. I don't understand Alter Cheliak's teenaged girls, but hopefully that's not too much of my job and Asmodia can advise me on whatever is. Keltham talked about wanting to check over if their options were good enough, not their fates. He wants to offer them choices and see what they pick. What else would Alter Cheliak's have offered them that they're turning down to stay in the fortress? Obviously not free run of Ostenso while they learn in an enchanter's workshop there, because that they'd just take. So even without Detect Thoughts existing, Alter Cheliak's has to be too worried about security issues to let them do that, or any other jobs nicer than being stuck in a fortress. Am I doing this right? Slightly backwards. What does Alter Cheliak's offer them? Just from what we established about it, not from what we want it to offer. But in this case, I think it gets the same answer. Alter Cheliax is still paranoid about someone going after the former Project Lawful Girls for intel and wants them somewhere safe. They could be offered a role on another secret project if there's one they'd be suited to. They could be offered powerful magic to untraceably change their identities and start new lives on the other side of the world if such magic is available to Cheliax, which I don't know it to be. They could be offered a role on the project doing support magic. Clarissa Siva, who was admittedly rushed, has neglected to include some critical advice and life experience with respect to dating Dath Ilani. Meritzel has made the serious error of mentioning that she didn't fully grasp some of what Keltham said earlier about stock companies. Keltham is currently explaining how a lawful corporation has an internal prediction market which forecasts the observable results on running various possible projects that company could be trying, which in turn is used to generate an estimate of marginal returns on marginal internal investment. This prevents a corporation from engaging in obvious madness like accepting an internal project with 6% returns while turning down another internal project with expected 10% returns. The wider market, obviously, would also like to invest all its money where it'll get the highest returns, but it's usually not efficient to offer the broader market a specialised sub-ownership of particular corporate sub-projects. Since the ultimate usefulness of corporate sub-projects is usually dependent on many other internal outputs of the company, it doesn't do any good to have a website without something to sell from it. Sure, if everyone was an ideal agent, they'd be able to break things down in such a fine-grained way. But the friction costs and imperfect knowledge are such that it's not worth breaking companies into even smaller ownable pieces. So the wider stock market can only own shares of whole corporations, which combine the outputs and costs of all that company's projects. Thus, any corporation continuously buys or sells its own stock, or rather has standing limit orders into the stock market to buy various quantities if the price goes low, or sell various quantities if the price goes high, at prices that company sets depending on its internal belief about the returns from investing or not investing in the marginal sub-projects being considered. If the company isn't considered credible by the wider market, its stock will go lower and the company will automatically buy that stock which leaves them less money to invest in new projects internally and means that they only invest in projects with relatively higher returns, doing less total investment but getting higher returns on the internal investments that they do start. 
Conversely, if the wider market thinks a company's promises to do a lot with money are credible, the stock price will go up and money will flow into that company until they no longer have internal investment prospects that credibly beat the broader market. This may sound complicated, and it is probably a relatively more complicated part of the machinery that is necessarily implied by the existence of distinct stock corporations in the first place. But the alternative, if you zoom out and look at the whole planet of Darth Elan, is that a corporation in one place would be investing in a project with internally expected returns of 6%, and somebody on the other side of the planet would be turning down a project with market-credible returns of 10%, which means you could reorganise the whole planet and do better in a predictable way. So whatever does happen as a consequence of the existence of stock corporations, it has to be not that. Some form of drastic action on Meritzel's part is obviously required if she wants to get back on track to having sex with this person. What does she do, if anything? I have to admit, this is a new way for someone to fail to figure out how to wear me. Right. Sorry. This is more, more of a recognized problem in Dathilan, and the gender tropes, the male-female behavior options, do usually have the girl interrupting the boy before he gets to this point, or the boy interrupting the girl, but that happens around a quarter as often. Well, if you didn't like current ongoing events, clearly there must be something you'd rather be doing, and it is hardly thinkable that this activity would not involve me in any way. So what, do tell, is your greater preference? If you wish to support this AI reading and others like it, please visit patreon.com slash AI. Any help is appreciated. And thank you to executive producer John Doe 7776059.